Now let's uh, turn together to the evening scripture reading from the book of First John in the New Testament. If you will turn to the first chapter, the book of John just before the book of Revelation, and we are reading as we did last Sunday evening a selection of verses in connection with the theme that I want to bring to your attention tonight. Chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 6, and you will notice that all of the verses I quote, seven in all this evening, begin with the words, if we claim, or if anyone says, words to that effect. Chapter 1, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And finally, Chapter 4, verse 20, if you will turn there. The seventh of these great repetitive refrains throughout the book of First John, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. May God bless this selection of verses from his own word to our understanding tonight. Now many of you are aware that on these Sunday evenings we are drawing toward the conclusion of a long series of expositions through a most remarkable and enriching and challenging book of scripture, the book of 1 John. And last Sunday evening I began what I said would be a series of four summarizing sermons dealing with the overview of this whole book, some of its great themes that we have touched on in one way and then come to them again in another way during the course of these many expositions, but which we need to stand back from, as it were, and look at them almost with a bird's eye view. And you may remember that last Sunday evening in the first of these summarizing sermons, I sought to, to apply the overall message of 1 John to our hearts under the title of the Evidences of the New Birth. And we looked at a number of these texts throughout the book of 1 John that in a most challenging way bring to us uh, conclusively what are the decisive evidences of being in Christ. And I exhorted you to examine your hearts and your lives in the light of those passages. 
Now, next Sunday, God willing, we plan to look at the subject of do we really love one another? And on December the 23rd, to conclude the whole series, as we again return to the end of John 5, under the heading of Blessed Assurance. But tonight, we come to the seven tests of Christian genuineness. Now, you might say, in what way does tonight's exposition differ from last week's exposition? And it differs, I think, in this way, that last Sunday evening, the tests, you remember, were directed to the unbeliever, the evidences of the new birth. The challenge was for those who are outside of Christ or unsure of their position in Christ to take this biblical evidence and to lay it alongside their lives in order that they might become sure of their spiritual state before God. Now the difference is that tonight the evidences and somewhat different evidences, though there is an interconnection, are laid alongside the lives of those of us who are sure that we are Christians, who believe that we have repented of sin and turned to the Lord Jesus and rested upon him alone for our salvation. In order that the great purpose of this epistle might be richly fulfilled in our lives, namely that we might know with a greater assurance than ever that we possess eternal life. And you remember that this is the whole purpose of one John. Whereas the Gospel of John was written in order that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the first letter of John, as we have seen again and again, was written in order that those who have believed in him might be assured in their belief and in their standing in Christ, in the midst of all the satanic delusions of that age in which John wrote. Now I suggest to you that we need this exposition this evening for that very reason, that we in our own Christian lives might search out again what is the genuine mark of being in Christ, that our profession might be a true and genuine profession of faith in him. Now, although there are three headings, as you will notice from the sermon note sheet this evening, there are actually seven subjects, and I want to deal with them individually. Each of these seven tests, as it were, of the genuineness of Christian profession. And the first one, you notice, begins in verse 6 of chapter 1. They all begin with the same repetitive refrain, if we say, or if anyone claims. And tonight we're going to look, as you may realize already from the reading, at each one of these seven great uh, repetitive refrains. Chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, we covered this in the course of our expositions, but I want to return to it again this evening. It's one of the early fundamental lessons, you recall, that we learn from the book of 1 John. And its implication is that the test is in relation to our being false to others. 
If we are not what we say that we are, we are not practicing the truth. We are being false to others. Now look at what John is saying there, just briefly with me in verse 6. And I remind you again that the test, according to John, is not in the profession. Many times this is intimated to us, you recall, in the early chapters, it's not in what we say, John reminds us, that the reality of our Christian faith is to be shown, but in the walk that characterizes the Christian, the way that he lives. If we say thus and thus, that we are living in a very different way from what our lips profess, then, says John, the profession is without any value and significance in the eyes of God whatsoever. And in this particular incident, you notice that he reminds us we are living in a world that is a dark world. We are walking in darkness. It is a sin-sodden world around us. And generally, the inhabitants do walk in darkness, in sin and ignorance, and in a state of unregeneracy and unrighteousness before God, in blindness, having their understanding darkened, as the Apostle Paul says, not knowing God or Christ or any true sight of themselves and their real condition. They are ignorant of all these things, strangers, to the work of the Spirit of God. They love darkness rather than light. And John says that if our profession is only a profession without a life that is in correspondence to it, then we ourselves are in that same state that the sin-sodden world around us lives out its daily life one of complete and total spiritual darkness. Now clearly, those in that condition are not in fellowship with God because the test is not in words, but in the walk that we practice. Now what he's also saying to us, you notice, in this test of fellowship in verse 6, is that what we need, by contrast, is a life lived out in the light. In other words, if we truly profess the faith that is in Christ Jesus, then we will be willing to walk in the light of his word. And it will, according to John and in the expression that he uses, affect every department of our life and relationship, our conversation, the way we conduct ourselves in our business enterprises, the friendships that we choose and follow. We will be in fellowship with him and we will be practicing the truth. And as I said to you when we originally looked at this passage, a life lived in darkness can have no more fellowship with God than a life spent at the bottom of a coal mine can have communion with the sun. And the point is simply that if we live in this very dark world as we do and are in the midst of it, 
and all of its impurities, we should live and move as a people who are regenerate in Christ Jesus, who do not partake of this surrounding darkness, but walk by contrast in the light, whose lives by God's grace are moral and sweet and are a sanctifying influence with thoughts that are pure and clean, a people that breathe in, as it were, the light and have fellowship with God who lives in light. And the test of fellowship then is in our walk and not in our words. By their fruits, said Jesus, you shall know them. Now take that this evening and lay it alongside your life. And if you find that indeed that is the characteristic, rejoice with exceeding and great joy and be glad that the mark of a genuine Christian is in you. But secondly, in verse 8, there is the test of sanctity, as I have called it this evening. Again, the same refrain, if we say or if anyone claims that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now here the possibility is in being false to ourselves, says John, if we say that we have no sin. Now we've just seen that genuine Christians do not walk in darkness, but in the light. Nevertheless, they do have sinful tendencies. There are sensuous impulses that take hold of each of us, and all of you here in this service this evening know how strongly the currents of a sinful nature may still flow through you, even as a regenerate person, those sudden sinful inclinations that you thought you had dealt with a long time ago surface in a given situation. And it is only with real effort and the grace of God that you resist and wrestle down that principle of sin. And at times, as we all admit, we are snared by the devil. We are drawn by compromise into worldly ways. We are seduced and led astray by sin. So just as it is a lie to profess to be born of God and to walk in darkness still, so for a man born of God, says John, to profess sinlessness is also a lie and is not the truth. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now again, beloved, I want you to grasp this great thought of John this evening. Let me remind you that whatever measure of sanctification you may reach in this world as a child of light, your Christian walk will always be accompanied by a great longing for a state yet higher, because you know that the state you are in is not one yet of sinlessness. There is a higher level to reach, clearly conceived by us in the light of Scripture, consciously sought after by us in the light of God's Word. 
So in summary, a man born of God faces up to things as they really are within him. And far from professing perfection and sinlessness in this life, he cries out with the apostle in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And I remind you once more, my dear friends, that Romans 7 is the cry of a regenerate man from verses 14 through 25. It is his experience after conversion, not before it, as some would erroneously teach. His experience even as a mature Christian, a greatly gifted apostle, was that on the one hand, he continually cried out, I am a sinner in the sight of God, and continually cried out, but I am being delivered from that sin by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language that you see all through that section can only be explained in terms of the experience of a Christian man. The unregenerate man does not cry out, who shall deliver me from the body of this death and answer immediately, why Jesus Christ the Lord. And an unregenerate man does not say, I delight after the law of God in the inward man. And the tenses that the apostle uses in that section are the present tenses, I do, I consent, O wretched man that I am, and so forth. It is present Christian experience. And every true believer struggles with indwelling sin, but he struggles from a position of victory that Christ has given him. It is no longer in dominion over his life. And though we may be mystified by that sin that clings so closely to us, in no way can we excuse or defend our sin. And certainly while we are assured of complete deliverance from it one day, that day is not while we are still in the body. Now do you see what John is saying? That true sanctification continues in the believer from his conversion to his death. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. Jesus said in a prayer that was for the benefit of his church. And that is our situation. If we say that we have no sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now is that your experience? Lay that beside your life this evening. And if you find that that is true, rejoice again that it is evident that you are in Christ. And evident not from your words, but from your walk. Now thirdly, there is in verse 10 of chapter 1, the test of righteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Now here the possibility is that of being forced to God, of making God a liar, and the truth not being in us. Now we've seen a moment ago that we are sinners by nature and practice. 
We have no natural righteousness of our own. We have by nature only unrighteousness. And here is the test. You see, no unrighteous man, no unregenerate man, will ever assent to that truth. He will say, yes, I'm a sinner, but but there is always that but. And he goes on to excuse it and explain it away. And if you take him to the scriptures and to Psalm 51 and show him David with a broken heart, saying, in sin did my mother conceive me, I was born with a wicked nature. He is shocked. If you take him into Romans 1, where Paul lays out the enormity of human sin apart from the grace of God, he will want to argue with you and defend his own sinful nature and practices and say it's not really as bad as the apostle makes it out to be. Or you take him into Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he will want to deny it. And he's no regard for the life and obedience of the Lord Jesus. No awareness of his need for the righteousness of Christ and the mighty work of his death and his resurrection from the cross and from the grave. But by contrast, the characteristic of the believer is that he says it is not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his grace that he saved me. He is wholly and solely resting upon the righteousness imputed to him on the basis of the work of Christ. Now you see, that's what John is telling us here. Wherever there is this resting upon the righteousness of another, the refusal to say that we have no sin and do not need the work of God in Christ. Wherever there is that refusal, there is the mark of someone who is a genuine Christian. There is an imputed righteousness that I need, and it becomes, as it works out in my life, a personal righteousness as I grow in sanctification and in holiness in my Christian life, the test of righteousness. Now the fourth test, as John continues in these familiar refrains, if anyone says, or he that claims to know him, chapter 2, verse 4, and does not keep his command, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, this is the test of allegiance. Although the language may be say the same, you notice that John is bringing in a new thought here. And it is the test of allegiance to Christ. In other words, the commandments of God are before us. And those who will not listen and obey are not his. Whatever they may profess, whatever they may say, however they may feel, with warm and fuzzy feelings, if you like, inside them. They are liars in the end, says John, and their allegiance is not to him. Why? Because the test of allegiance to Christ is a humble and submissive obedience to his revealed will in his word. And that is the manifestation 
of our knowing him. There is no real fellowship with God, beloved. There is no communion with him without a practical conformity to his will. He that says I know him and does not regard his commandments does not have the truth dwelling in him. Now you remember in our long series we looked at this in the light of the heretics against which John was contending, the Gnostics, who separated the body from the spirit and said the body is evil. But what matters is our state in spirit. Therefore, if the body goes out and does sinful things and we are engaged in sinful practices, it doesn't really matter. And John contended against that great error by showing that professed allegiance to Christ is tested by the body's obedience to the commands of Christ. And we need to lay that against our lives this evening and see how well we love and cherish the revealed will of our Savior and whether in fact there is the mark of genuineness in our claim to be a follower of Christ. Now fifthly, if you look at chapter 2 verse 6, there is the test of behavior. John says, he that says or claims that he abides in him or himself so to walk, even as he, that is Jesus, walks. Now, what John is bringing to us here is the thought of our attitude to the world. And the possibility is envisaged that in our attitude to the world we may be proved to be false in our profession. And the test is, how did Christ walk through this world? Well, you may remember in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 29, the Lord Jesus, in speaking of those who were opposed to him, said, I do always those things that please him, that is, my Father in heaven. Now, when we look at that walk and example of the Lord Jesus, we have to say that very often our profession in this life is, I do always those things that please myself. But Jesus never said that. And everywhere he went, and everything that he did, and all that he said was abundantly pleasing to his Father in heaven. And this is the test that John is bringing and laying it against our lives. Everyone who says that he is with Christ, who abides with him, ought to live in this world as he lives. How did he live? I do always the things that please him. And it's the test of our behavior. Beloved, does your life please God substantially in all you do? As you read of the life and example of the Lord Jesus and see how he walked, are you endeavoring to walk in that way through this world? You know, it's a very significant test for the age in which we live. It's an age of self-will and self-pleasing on every hand, even among Christians. And many who make a profession show a similarity rather to the Jews who said, we will not have this man 
to reign over us. And when the word of God begins to bite into the conscience and illuminate the mind and challenge the heart, the response is one of self-interest and self-pleasing. But Jesus was not like that. He was not self-willed. I seek not my own will, he said, but to do the will of my Father in heaven. And hard as it is to put pride down and self aside, lay that against your life tonight and say, am I a genuine Christian? Now the sixth test is in verse 9 of chapter 2. He that says or claims he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. And the possibility here envisaged is that of being false to one's brethren in Christ. Now it's significant that John goes on to say it's an old command and yet it's entirely new. And I think we saw that he meant it was given in the Old Testament scriptures that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But it was renewed by the Lord Jesus who invested that commandment with a fresh and mighty force, with a new meaning from his own example of deathless love even for his enemies. And there is a fresh glow upon it. There is a fresh force within it that we should love the brethren. And what is this love of the brethren? Well, it's the very antithesis, beloved, of that fleshly, self-seeking and rivalry that we see around us and sometimes in the church. You know, troublemakers within the church or the fellowship don't have this brotherly love that John speaks on. Of course, there are times when there are issues of importance and we should take a stand, but where you find there is a fault-finding, critical spirit that majors on the negative and overlooks the positive is always out to put someone down in that person's heart and life, whatever he professes to be, he does not have nor possess the love of God in any substantial substance. He is in the darkness, says John, even till now. And such a person destroys true Christian love and warmth and harmony by a critical and fault-finding attitude. And John is reminding us again that true Christianity has far more to do with the deeds of the life and the heart than the words of the mouth. Lay that against your life tonight. Is there practical, self-sacrificing love for the benefit of the body of Christ? Remember this morning, if I am feeling the drawing power of the presence of God and the dignity of the praise of God. What do I do? I pledge my life for Zion's cause. I put others first. I do not insist on my own view prevailing. And I have to say that some folks are not worried about what havoc they can cause in a fellowship, not worried what trouble they may stir up for others in spirit, provided that they can insist on having their own way. 
And this is not the way of Christ. In honor, preferring one another, says the Apostle. Let us live self-sacrificially for the Lord and his church. Let us give way whenever we can where matters of principle are not involved. There are enough big issues to stand for without fighting every little one that may arise. And the test of spirituality is that bond of love for one another within the body of Christ. Now, I call that test the test of spirituality, and I close this evening quite briefly with chapter 4, verse 20, which I call the test of love. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar, for he that does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Beloved, ending on this note, what other can I say to you this evening than this? But love is the sign of the new birth par excellence. Love makes us long for the unity of the fellowship. Do I love the fellowship of God? Do I long for communion with his saints? Do I love God and the things of God? The word of God, the worship of God, the people of God? then I will love my brethren and my sisters in Christ. And you see the world observing this sees that you have left its camp. You no longer bear the stigmata of the world upon you with its rivalry and self-seeking. But you have joined yourselves to another company that is not of the world, the people of God. And the world observing sees that you have changed sides and joined them. And such is the distinction in the child of God that his life, as we saw this morning, is like a light in a dark place with a peace and a prosperity upon it that the world cannot mimic and cannot read. So let us pray for all here in this fellowship who profess the true faith that we may shout in growing love for the brethren and a love that flows out from them indeed to all men. So tonight we've looked at the seven great tests of Christian genuineness. They exist, every one of them, not in words, I remind you, but in deeds, in transformed lives. And may God this evening, by his Spirit, show us all where we stand in this relationship with him. If we say, then the outworking is to live in the light, to walk in love, to obey his commandment, to leave the side of the world. And all of these things, are his reassuring evidences that he has given us to know that we possess eternal life in truth and should rejoice in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these tests of Christian genuineness and ask that indeed we may not only possess them, every one of them, 
but possess them more and more, and in that possession rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ, who have led us out of darkness and into his own marvelous light. For Jesus' sake, amen.